And let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. As we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark, we come to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56, a familiar story of Jesus walking on the water, and then Mark's summary of Jesus' ministry so far in verses 53 to 56. Next week, we'll start a new section of the gospel according to Mark where the bad guys come back on the scene, the scribes and the Pharisees who seem to like to ruin everything for everybody. Jesus has got something else coming for them. But for now, this morning, we look at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56, and we see Jesus, the unseen God, now seen. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, what a glorious display of your power. And yet, what a wonderful display of your humanity. Jesus, we are struck by the reality that even in your own ministry, you were dependent on the Father and the Spirit through prayer. And so it's only fitting that we, your servants, would be so much more dependent on you through prayer. And so we, before we approach the holy ground of your word, we come to you in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would demonstrate your power, the power of your word in our hearts to transform us and to change us to grant faith to those who need it for the very first time and to strengthen faith for those who have it. Lord, as we walk through the difficulties of life, we confess that it is a temptation, albeit an unintentional and unknowing temptation, to take our eyes off of you and to not trust you. We think that we trust you because we're in you, and, and certainly there's a, a certain amount of trust there in you, but, 
But as Mark wants to make it so clear to us, the readers, that the disciples could be so close to you and yet miss it. You recognize too, Jesus, that we can be close to you and yet miss it. But as you so graciously move toward them and we're not repelled by their hardened hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would continually move toward us. We thank you and we rest on your promise that you are always with us. And we thank you especially that that promise of your continual presence with us is not dependent upon us in any way, but is entirely dependent on you. And we can count on it because you're faithful. Because what you say is true. And so, Lord, help us to apply those realities, the truths of your word, to our hearts and to the difficult situations that we are walking through and the difficult situations that we will walk through. Lord, you have taught us many lessons throughout our life, and we can look back on those lessons and we can see how we failed to be faithful to you, and yet you demonstrated your faithfulness to us. We can look back on those times when we realize that what we did not realize in the moment, that we weren't trusting you like we should have been trusting you. And as we look back on those times, we recognize that we want to trust you, and we are able to trust you in greater ways as we move forward. But Lord, life brings its storms. And life brings its temptations. While we still reside in these bodies, we face the weakness of the flesh. So we pray for your help. And we pray that this passage from your word would be that very help that we need today. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would take up your sword and use it in whatever way is appropriate for each heart here today. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was a leap of faith. Indiana Jones and his father were on a quest, a quest for what is so often called the Holy Grail, or as George Lucas liked to put it, the last crusade. Their quest had led them to Petra, the city that was carved into rock by the ancient Israelites. The legend said that the Holy Grail lie inside of that rock fortress and that if anyone were to find it, they would have to go through a series of tests. You remember if you've seen that movie that made All of us want to be that cool archaeologist with the leather jacket and the brown hat and the whip, of course. You remember, if you've seen it, that what happened was that the evil Nazi commander shot Indiana Jones' father and he lie on the ground there dying, which only motivated Indiana Jones to go through each of the series of tests that he would have to endure in order to get to the other side and find the supposed holy grail, which they said would grant eternal life. Bad theology, but go with me here. And so Indiana Jones was faced with a problem that he was forced to challenge and to tackle, but it was a problem that required that he believe. 
He made it through the first of the challenges as he had to make his way by stepping onto the right places and spelling out the name of God. And then he made it to the next challenge where this mountainside opens up to this great canyon, a canyon that he says was too far to jump. And as he lie, as he stood there staring out on this vast cavern that separated him between what would heal his father, he realized that it was a leap of faith. As his father lie dying there, he whispers to his son, though he couldn't hear him, believe, boy, you must believe. Indiana Jones takes a deep breath, puts his hand on his heart, closes his eyes, puts his foot out, and steps. And it just so happens that he landed on solid ground to the relief, of course, of himself and to the relief of everyone watching him on the screen. It was a leap of faith. Why in the world am I telling you a story about Indiana Jones? I'm telling you a story about Indiana Jones because I think that we are tempted to treat the Christian life as though it is a leap of faith. As though the challenges that we face in life, the, the, the ones that stare us straight in the face and almost taunt us, as though they are something like a gamble. In fact, don't we often use the phrase, it was a leap of faith? We sometimes are tempted to treat the Christian life as though it's supposed to be the sort of thing where we just sort of close our eyes, put out our foot, pray that we will land on solid ground, and then move forward not knowing if we really are going to or not. And while certainly there are complicated decisions in the Christian life, things that you don't know are going to work out or not, Certainly there are those things and we exercise the, the patterns of wisdom that God gives to us. Certainly there are those circumstances in life where we just don't know what the future holds for us. But the reality of walking with Christ and being in Christ is not a close your eyes, pray, leap, and see if you land. The reality of being in Christ and the great joy and the great benefit of being in Christ is that you will land on sure ground no matter what. Now sure, if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, I mean, you will land on sure ground. But it won't go well for you when you land. Now there's obvious ways to distort the reality of the sure footing that we have in Jesus Christ. But my friends, as Mark continues to unfold for us what he calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he shows us over and over again who Jesus is so that we would rest in him and trust him and walk confidently with him. Let's not forget that while we read this particular story or any story in the gospel according to Mark, that there are actually three parties at work here. There's Jesus, there's the disciples, and then there's us. Why did Mark write the gospel according to Mark? To be read by you and me. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the gospel of Mark? 
so that we would look at it and learn from it. We can certainly figure out what type of a windstorm this was on the Sea of Galilee and how it was that they intended to go to Bethsaida but ended up in Gennesaret. We can think about those things, but it really doesn't thrill our soul, does it? Mark knows that he's writing a gospel that will be read by people who most likely have already heard this story. And so he includes something about the disciples' hearts, doesn't he? Why does he include something about the disciples' hearts? Because he wants the disciples, whatever time period they are in, who are reading the gospel of Mark, to not fall into the same mistake that the disciples who experienced it fell into. To not have a hard heart. To not lack faith. To know that when you are in trouble, if you are in Christ, that just like the Psalms continually make clear, you have a God who is a fortress, a rock on which you stand. And you may not know the end result of that diagnosis. You may not know the end result of whatever problem that you face, that, that conflict at work the financial situation of the nation. You might not know the end result, but you know the one who knows. And so as we move through the gospel according to Mark, over and over and over again, we see that the disciples are so fixed on their problem that they miss lifting their eyes up off of their problem. Or as the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. What the psalmist says, what Mark wants us to understand is that there is no problem that's bigger than Jesus. And that's a, that's a Sunday school reality, right? That's something that they would teach just a couple doors down. But that's something that we need to teach right here. Because while it is so simple, it is so foundational And I think that if you took that reality and you compared it to your anxieties and you compared it to your fears and you compared it to the things that keep you up at night, you would realize that maybe this simple reality has not sunk its way down into your heart as deeply as it should sink its way into your heart. And yet you see that Jesus is not repelled by that. He doesn't say, You boneheads don't get it. I'm out of here. He gets into the boat because he promises he will be with you. He will not forsake you. And so this reality of realizing who Jesus is teaches us that the Christian life is not a gamble. It's not a leap of faith. It is a walk of faith, but it's a walk of faith with one who is worthy of faith. And it's a walk of faith with one who can be absolutely trusted. It's a walk of faith with one who takes you into his arms and leads you all the way home into glory through every difficulty that this life throws at you. That's what we're meant to understand. Not just how cool it is that Jesus can walk on water, though it is pretty cool. 
But just as Mark has done so often, and just as he will continue to do, he uses the actions of Jesus to point to the identity of Jesus so that his readers, most likely who were suffering in Rome, would understand that the one who came to the disciples by walking on the lake into the storm, the one who healed everyone who, brought, who was brought to him, that very same one has promised them that, they would be, that he would be with them. And while they would still walk through storms and they may not be healed of their ailments, the reality is that the identity of Jesus and the power of Jesus must bring comfort to the followers of Jesus. The reality of recognizing who Jesus is and what Jesus does is the very thing that gives us confidence to walk through this life with Jesus. And so let's press that into our hearts this morning so that we would get that very confidence that we need to walk with Jesus. I want us to see from this passage three actions that reveal the identity of Jesus and give us the confidence to fully trust him in every circumstance. Three actions that reveal the identity of Jesus and give us the confidence to fully trust him in every circumstance. I sat and tried to think about all the different ways that I could apply this into the particulars of our lives, and then I realized I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'll certainly do my best to apply this, and and you may or may not have noticed I already have But what I want to do this morning is to hold out these principles so that you can then take them throughout this week as you meditate on the word. You can then take them and apply the healing balm of the identity of Jesus to your own circumstances. Mark shows quite clearly who is in control throughout this first section of the this passage, throughout this first story that he highlights for us. It's Jesus. In case there were any guesses, right? It's Jesus. You'll notice all the verbs that describe the actions of Jesus. He makes the disciples get into the boat. He dismisses the crowds. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He sees them in their struggle. He comes to them. He passes by them. He speaks to them. He gets in the boat with them. And then when we move to the the summary story of Jesus' healing, it's him that gets all the attention, and it's him whose garment they touched, and it's him who heals them with his power. This story serves to teach us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And it does it, I think, in three ways. First of all, in in the first way that we see the identity of Jesus revealed, the first action that reveals the identity of Jesus to us is that Jesus walks where God walks. Jesus walks where God walks. Verses 45 to the first part of verse 50. First of all, Jesus uh, sees his disciples in trouble, or or rather he he is is in a situation where he's faced with a dilemma. Mark doesn't tell us about what the dilemma is. John tells us that the dilemma was that the crowd, having been fed by Jesus, wanted to make him king. They realized who he was, but what they did not realize is that the conquering king would first be the suffering servant. 
Because suffering always comes before glory. And so verse 45 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. It's strong language. He made them get into the boat. Get out of here. Go to Bethsaida. I'm going to get rid of this crowd. Perhaps the disciples were joining in the fervor. Yes, let's take him and make him king now. Jesus would have nothing of that. It wasn't time yet. He had not fulfilled the Father's plan to satisfy his wrath against sinners. And so Jesus disperses the crowd, dismisses his disciples. Verse 46 says, And after he had taken leave of them, or after he said goodbye, he went up on the mountain to pray. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus prays, and each one of them are at significant points throughout his ministry. Perhaps Jesus went to pray because he faced the temptation to sort of fast forward the Father's plan. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that Jesus took times to get away by himself to pray. And of course, the implication would be if Jesus needed to take time alone with his Father to pray, how much more do his disciples need to take time alone with his Father to pray? And so Jesus is up on the mountain. He's perched on a high place. And verse 47 says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Mark's got got you set up to see this, right? They're out in the middle of the sea. John says three, three and a half miles out into the sea, right in the middle, Mark says. Jesus is up on top of a mountain all by himself, all alone. You'll remember that Jesus fed the 5,000 just before it was getting dark. Now it's dark. It seems that the disciples had been rowing, trying to get to the other side for quite a long time. Verse 48 says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Or in other words, they were making headway painfully, could be, is literally translated, they were harassed in rowing. So Mark wants you to see in your mind a group of 12 men pulling on oars so hard they don't have much strength left and the wind is beating them back to keep them from getting to the place where Jesus had commanded them to go. Was this a surprise to Jesus? You see it turns out that Jesus had actually sent them into this trouble. It isn't that the reality of following Jesus sometimes. Obeying Jesus will sometimes get you into trouble. We will see that more and more in the coming years in this nation, won't we? It's what the church has seen ever since its inception. Following Jesus, obeying Jesus is always worth it, but it will get you into trouble. And yet the disciples don't give up. They keep straining at the oars. They keep going. Now I don't know why they kept going, but it seems as though they kept going simply because Jesus told them to go. And so Jesus looks out and he sees this. Mark continues, verse 48, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking 
on the sea. The fourth watch of the night, you, you Bible might even have a footnote about this, is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it was just about to get dark when Jesus fed the 5,000. We can assume that it took them a while to distribute food to 15 to 20,000 people. It took them a while to eat the food. It took them a while for Jesus to get them, the disciples, into the boat and took them a while to dismiss the crowd. So it's probably dark by the time the disciples begin their journey. And now it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They had been rowing for a long time. But Jesus sees them. Perhaps he was so caught up in his prayer time with the Father that he didn't see them until now. Or perhaps he wanted to let them struggle for a little while. Either way, he was about to teach his disciples who he was by what he did. What was it that prompted his coming to them? He saw that they were struggling. If you're familiar with the Psalms at all, then you know that theme, don't you? The psalmist cries out to God over and over again and tells God how much he is struggling. And then he declares that God comes to him in his cry, in his struggle. What's Mark wanting to teach us here? He's wanting to teach us the very thing that someone being able to walk on the sea teaches us. Jesus is God. Jesus is that God. The God whom the Old Testament cries out to, the Old Testament saints cry out to, and yet when they cry, he comes. It's another extension and another reflection of the reality that we saw last week, that he is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And so he comes to them and he walks on the sea, something that the Old Testament makes crystal clear only God can do. But we don't even need the Old Testament to understand that, do we? You ever tried to walk on the sea before? I don't know if you did this, but when we were kids and we went to the swimming pool, we tried this. And wouldn't you know, it never worked. It would work sometimes if, you know, you'd staggered some floaties and you were able to sort of bounce across the floaties. But at some point, you'd always slip and dive in head first, right? It just never worked because only God can do this. What does Jesus want his disciples to learn? As he sends them into trouble, he walks across the water to them. Why? Because they didn't understand about the loaves, Mark says, and he wants to show them what they are so clearly missing. You'll notice that Mark says then he meant to pass by them. There's a lot of different ideas on what this means by meaning to pass by them. But the best one, the best, most clear explanation is not that Jesus was kind of taking a stroll and he didn't want his disciples to see them. You know, some people have speculated he wanted to play a trick on them. He wanted to beat them to the other side so that when they got there, he could say, where you been? That's not at all what this points us to. 
but it points us back to all three times in the Old Testament where God passed by someone to reveal his glory to them. What's happening here is that Jesus is passing by his people in a clear demonstration that says through his actions, I am the glory of Israel. What you could not once see, you can now see in me. You think of Moses, for instance. In Moses chapter 33, in Exodus, not Moses chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 to 23, it's in the context of the, the people of Israel sinning against God by making a golden statue and Moses going down and burning it and making them drink it and God saying, I'm done with these people. I'm going to take you and I'm going to start over. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. You must go with us. If you don't go with us, then we won't go anywhere. And so God reinstates and reengages his promise to be with his people. And Moses is overwhelmed by it. And he wants to see God's glory. And so Verse 18 to 23 picks up with that idea. Moses said, please show me your glory. Which I think is a, a cry of every Christian, isn't it? God, I want to see you. Let me see you. Verse 19, and, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand so you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Elijah again experiences the very same thing in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 11. When Elijah has just defeated the prophets of Baal and he's killed them. And then the wicked queen says, I'm going to kill you. And he flees to the mountains and he cries to the Lord and he says, I'm I'm, I'm it. There's nobody left. And God says, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And God appears to Elijah in a very similar way that he appears to Moses. Not so that he could see him, but so that he would hear the whisper of the voice of God. And in 1 Kings 19, 11, it says, And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by him. But perhaps the most clear reference to this particular passage in multiple ways comes to us in Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. In chapter 9 of Job, it's clearly indicating that there is a separation between God and man. The overwhelming majesty of God above man is the theme of Job chapter 9. And then in verses 8 and 11... God explains that it is him alone who stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. What did, what did Jesus just do? Didn't he just trample the waves of the sea to get to his people? 
And then verse 9 says, who made the bear and Orion, the the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching them out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. When Mark says that Jesus meant to pass by them, he's not saying that Jesus was ignoring them until he realized they were panicking because they thought he was a ghost. What he's saying is that what Moses could not see, what Elijah could not see, what Job could not see, the disciples could now see in the face of Jesus. Isn't this 2 Corinthians 3 and 4? We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God whom you once could not see, you can see in Jesus. And this is, isn't this what Hebrews tells us? He is the image of the invisible God. You see, it's not just a cool trick that Jesus displays his power to be able to walk on water, to, to trample the waves of the sea like Job says. It's a realization and a revelation without words that he is the very glory of God that was once unable to be seen, but is now not only seen, but embodied and for the readers resides with you. Now, shouldn't that put some wind in our sails? Doesn't that give us confidence? That's the point. It's not that Jesus was ignoring them. It was that Jesus was making it crystal clear who he was. And so Jesus walks where God walks. And then secondly, Jesus talks how God talks. I realize that's not great grammar, but it's preachy. Jesus talks how God talks. It's good grammar where I come from, but. Second part of verse 50, uh, excuse me, I skipped verse 49. Let's go back to that. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. So they, they see him, they think it's a ghost. They probably didn't believe in ghosts, but how else do you explain someone walking on water? And they cry out. Verse 50 says, for they all saw him and were terrified. Of course they were. Because that doesn't happen. And if it happens to you, you should be terrified too, because it's weird. But immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately, he spoke to them. They cry out, they're terrified. And what does Jesus do as he reveals his glory? It's not the unseen glory. It's not the God whom you cannot see like Job. It's the God who you can see and the God who moves to you to comfort you and speaks to you. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus set this entire thing up so that this would happen. So that he would have the opportunity to tell them, I know you're scared, but I'm here. It's okay. There's a sweetness to that, isn't there? It's the type of sweetness that a parent experiences 
when their child wakes up with a night terror. You ever heard one of those? They're screaming their head off. They're terrified. What do you do as a parent? Or if you're babysitting, maybe. You go in there, and you take them in your arms, and you say, it's okay. It's okay, I'm here. Don't be afraid. I got you. This is what Jesus is doing. It's okay. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I got you. I'm here. I saw you struggling while I was up there praying, and I came to you because nothing can keep me from coming to you. What you perceive as an unfathomable problem and what actually is an unconquerable problem to you is nothing to me. I just walk on top of it to get to you. And not only will I get to you in it, but I will move into you to comfort you. To tell you, take heart. It's me. It's all right. John loves to highlight this phrase that Jesus uses. It is I, or more literally, I am. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. You remember where John gets that phrase, right? The I ams of John. He gets it from Moses' encounter with God. The first time Moses meets Yahweh in a burning bush. And Yahweh tells him, this is a paraphrase, okay? Listen, I'm going to use you, Moses. I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And this is how you're going to do it. And Moses says, uh, okay. And he says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. Because how else could you explain God? If, if God would have explained himself fully to Moses, he would have had to said, okay, sit down, grab a piece of paper and a pen. You're going to be here a while. So instead of telling him everything about himself, he says simply the very core of who he is is that he is. And there was never a time when he wasn't. Jesus is saying, I am that one who is. There was never a time when I wasn't. And so Mark has so clearly told us that this is the gospel of the Son of God speaking not to Jesus being born to God in some way, but speaking directly to Jesus' place within the Holy Trinity. That he's the Son of God speaks of his position as God the Son. And so the glory of God is being revealed here in the one who reveals it, and his name is Jesus. He is the I am. And he is the I am who moves in and brings comfort to his people and brings courage to his people and tells his people, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here. And so as Mark's readers, then and now, we look at that and we look around and we say, well, I don't see Jesus. But look, just as Mark 4 taught us, we look not with these eyes, we look with the eyes of faith. And we grab on to the promise that Jesus gave to us. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we say, I don't, I don't see him with my eyes. Oh, but I see him with my heart. I see him every time I open this 
I see him every time I sing to him. I see him when I'm on my knees crying out to him in prayer and desperation. I see him because I believe what he says. So let me just ask you then, do you see him? I'm not talking about in some weird way where, you know, you pour your creamer in your coffee and there's some kind of image that supposedly looks like white Jesus. Why is he always white? I mean, I don't, he was a Jew. I don't get it. I'm talking about seeing him the way that Jesus intends to be seen initially with the eyes of faith. When Thomas doubted, Jesus said, put your hand here. Touch, touch me right here. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe and yet do not see. So do you see Jesus? Have you come to faith in Jesus? Do you trust this Jesus? Because I tell you the truth, you could at any moment come to this Jesus. He is the one who is coming to you even now in your troubles. Will you listen to him? Will you welcome him into your boat? So he comes to them in their trouble. He speaks to them in their troubles. And verse 51 says, he gets into the boat with them in their troubles. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Just like that, the windstorm was over. Almost as if Jesus was God or something. You realize, of course, I'm being facetious, but I just have to state the obvious. And they were utterly astounded. I mean, how else could you describe the situation? You just saw your, your rabbi walking on water. You thought he was a ghost, but then he turned to you and he said, it's okay, it's me, don't be afraid. Let me just crawl up in this boat with you. And then when he does, the wind that you've been battling for hours just stops. What other response would there be then? What in the world is going on here? And yet, notice what Mark highlights about their response. Verse 52 says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We've seen hard hearts in the Gospel of Mark already. Do you remember who they belonged to? The scribes and the Pharisees, who had hard hearts when Jesus told the man on the mat that his sins were forgiven. They thought he was blaspheming. Because they didn't believe that he was God. The disciples here display that they are beginning to tip toward the wrong end of the response to Jesus. But notice how Jesus responded to them. He got in the boat, didn't he? He didn't say, you chumps. I'm sick of you guys. I'm going to go find some other disciples. Enjoy your windstorm. I'm just going to continue my stroll. He didn't say that, did he? And you know what? When you struggle, when you're tempted to have a little faith or even to doubt whether or not God can do something or even cares, Jesus doesn't reject you either. But it's in that very moment of weakness that he comes to you to strengthen you. Just like he did with Jairus. 
He healed the woman who touched him and he made it a public spectacle so that he could highlight her faith so that Jairus could see, even though he heard that his daughter had just died, Jesus said, just believe, so that Jairus would just believe him. And here's the application for us. We face difficult times, don't we? But just believe in Jesus. It really is that simple. And yet, how hard is it so often? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, I I don't struggle with that. I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't know why you don't struggle with it, but here's some food for thought. It could be that you don't take enough risks for the Lord. It could be that you have made your life so comfortable that you don't wrestle with doubt. You've insulated yourself so much that you don't have hard conversations with people who think you're a nut job. Other than your family members, you know. I don't know the situation, but I want you to consider that it it could very well be. Because what does Paul say? All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It could be that you don't struggle because you're not really walking faithfully. So Jesus comes to them in their struggle. He identifies himself. Jesus walks where God walks. Jesus talks how God talks. And then in verses 53 to 56, we see that Jesus heals as God heals. Verses 53 to 56 are Mark's summary for this entire ministry trip so far. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever, wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch him, even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. I don't think it's an accident that Mark has just told us about the hard hearts of the disciples, and now he demonstrates for us the popularity and the power of Jesus. Because he wants to sandwich the hard hearts of the disciples in the mix of Jesus' glorious power so that we, the readers, would say, Jesus, forgive me for the ways that I don't trust you and strengthen my trust in you as I recognize who you are and what you can do. If Jesus walks where God walks, he talks how God talks, and he heals how God heals, then there's only one conclusion to draw then, isn't there? He's God. It's interesting that Job 9 not only emphasizes Jesus's, or God's treading on the sea, not only that he passes by, but also verse 10 says, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. You know what the great things and the marvelous things are talking about? Miracles. Signs and wonders, which would include healing. So what are we to do with this? Well, I hope it's, I hope it's crystal clear by now what we are to do with this. But I want to focus back in on the disciples' response for just a moment. 
They didn't understand. Let me ask you, how close were the disciples in proximity to Jesus? Right next to him, right? Face to face. They pulled him into the boat. They were that close and totally oblivious. My friend, do you realize it's possible for you to be that close in life to Jesus and yet be totally oblivious? It's possible for you to have been in a church ever since the day you can remember and yet be totally oblivious to who Jesus really is. It's possible for you to be within the preaching of the gospel and, and, and think that you understand who Jesus is and yet be totally oblivious to who Jesus is. So I ask you, have you recognized who he is? And has that recognition of who he is led you then to a humble submission to him? Everybody wants a God who can heal them. But it takes a particular kind of person who wants a God who tells them how to use their money. A particular person who, take, who, who wants a God who tells them who they can marry and who they can't marry. Or even who they can date and who they can't date. How they should use their time and how they should not use their time. What they should be listening to and watching. What they should be taking in and not taking in. You see, Jesus pushes past all of our own personal space and he gets all up in our bubble because of who he is. So I ask you, have you recognized that? Is that who Jesus is to you? The God of your whole life? And I ask the rest of us who do trust Jesus, Don't you find times in your life where perhaps you don't realize it in the moment, but you can look back on it and you realize that you should have trusted the Lord more than you did in that moment? You see, just like we saw last week, just like we see every week, the disciples are just like us. And yet, Jesus still moves in toward the disciples when they have a hard heart, when they don't get it, when they fail to understand, when their faith is just a little bit, because that's what he does, and that's who he is. This compassionate shepherd who heals, saves. And in fact, the word for heals at the end of our section here is also the word that's used for he saved them. It's not enough to build a doctrine of salvation on, but it's a reminder to us of both the identity and the power of Jesus, who he is and what he does. And it's in that, in in realizing who he is and what he does, it's there that we draw confidence to walk with him through the difficulties of this life. Because this life is filled with its own windstorms, with its own straining at the oars. 
And yet Jesus comes to us. And those two simple realities, who Jesus is and what Jesus does, when pressed into our hearts, are the very things that give us the confidence that we need to know that we're not alone and that we are not only not alone, but we are in the arms of a Savior who loves us, who has compassion for us, who sees us in the struggle and doesn't even have to come to us. You know why? Because as Psalm 46 says, he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. He's always there. And so the next time you find yourself overwhelmed by trouble, and I know that there are some of us even here today who are overwhelmed by trouble, I want to encourage you to take some time And think about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Because we, like the disciples, are so tempted to keep our eyes on our circumstances. The problem, right? Well, I've got to do something about it. The best thing you can do about it is get a right perspective on it. Realize that there's a God who sits enthroned over it. And that's the very God who loves you who has come to you, who has paid for your sins and risen from the grave to give you the promise that he's always with you and will one day come back and receive you to himself and you'll see him face to face and you'll be like him one day and all of this will be over. But until then, we need to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does so that we can hear him say to us, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your wonder and your glory. The reality that you not only tell us who you are, but you show us who you are. Lord, your wisdom is unfathomable. Your ways are unsearchable. You could have just said, listen guys, You remember when Job said, you can't see me? Well, I'm the one that you can see. And it would have been completely true and and equally glorious. But instead, you did something better. You showed us. So help us see it rightly. And help us in our own minds to see you by faith and apply the realities of who you are and what you do to every circumstance of our life so that we would with great confidence walk in faith with you. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.